This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture, with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. There are various types of architecture firms out there doing all sorts of different kinds of work. But what is it like to work for a firm that routinely wins design awards and arguably falls into the category of design superstar? How do you get those jobs? Is the work more interesting and rewarding? What sort of room for growth is there? We're going to find out all this and a lot more as we welcome a special guest onto today's show. Welcome to episode 111, Talking Shop with Kevin Wright. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we have a guest on the program, which we already announced was Kevin Rice. And he's here today to answer the sort of questions I've been getting asked for years, but I am perfectly incapable of answering. Let me give an introduction to our guest and then we'll formally welcome him onto the show. Kevin Rice is a principal at Diller Scafidio and Renfro in New York with more than 25 years of experience in the design and management of cultural, educational, and public space projects. After receiving a Bachelor of Environmental Design at Texas A&M University in 1991 and a Master's of Architecture from Harvard's Graduate School of Design in 1996, Kevin's led a wide range of academic projects for Parkinson Well Architects and Polchek Partnership Architects in New York. In 2005, Kevin joined DSNR and has led some of the highest profile projects for the studio. He was project director for the Museum of Modern Art Renovation and Expansion in New York City. He led the design and construction of the Broad Contemporary Art Museum in downtown Los Angeles, which has got to be one of the most photographed projects in the last decade in downtown Los Angeles. And he led the design team for the $1.2 billion Lincoln Center 65th Street Public Spaces Redevelopment while providing management oversight for many of the 30 sub-projects across this cultural campus. Kevin sits on the Historic Preservation Committee of the Municipal Arts Society in New York and has lectured on the integration of public space and architecture at UCLA, USC, Cal Poly SLO, Woodbury University, Columbia University, Rice University, and the Center for Architecture in New York. Kevin and I know each other because he is the principal in charge for the restoration and expansion of Frank Lloyd Wright's Kalita Humphreys Theater Project in Dallas, Wright's only completed theater, and I am also, air quotes, working on the same project. Hey, Kevin, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Bob. All right. Glad to have you. Thanks for saying hi. You and Andrew are both A&M grads. We are. It's about time we got some decent folks on the show. (laughs) (laughs) I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. Kevin's joining us after hours, so thank you for that accommodating. I guess we all have day jobs, and making podcasts isn't one of them. Yeah. Thanks for staying up and adding to your evening. Where are you right now? I am in Staten Island, New York, of all places, where I lived here for a long time now. Nice. How long is the commute is that for you to get to the office? Uh, it's about an hour, but it's on a boat, so it doesn't. So it's uh, it's not bad. Every day you got to get on a boat. Every day I get on a boat, like a ferry, like a, a ferry. Yeah, a ferry. Okay. Yeah, fair. I was like, you're not driving your personal, like, uh, your power boating. Yeah, my, uh, Chris Craft. Nice 37 Chris Craft across to the. Yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> life is, life is good in this architect world. Oh, my God. That's so funny. <laughs> no, this, this, that now fairy. Okay. So we have lots of questions and this conversation can go in, in thousands of different ways. So we'll just see how this goes. But I wanted to start off by asking you, the very generic, how did your career develop and what led you to where you are right now? And I don't just mean I went to school here, then I went to school here, and then I worked for A and B and now I'm at C. I mean, are 
Are there things that led you to the, cause you're a principal, you know, there's, there's four kind of main people, DSNR. Yeah. And then there's, I think there's three principals there. Uh, yeah, that's right. So when it comes to the layer cake, you're at the top. Yeah. That's the question. How, how did you get to like, what kind of decisions you made that led you to where you're at right now? It goes back to AM, which professors to take and things like that. But, but I think, you know, there was kind of early on, you know, fell in with a couple of professors who were basically, you know, when you go to Harvard, not if you go to Harvard, like when you go to Harvard, you know, or when you go to Columbia, this is what you're going to do. And there was this push to even sophomore year, junior year at a and that you guys are, you know, it's a big school, but, you know, there's this kind of a handful of us that were kind of pushed into going to graduate schools. And, and actually, a and is a four plus two school, so a lot more of us go to graduate school than don't. And, you know, there was, you know, this is the the 90s, right? So it's like Harvard, Columbia, Sciarc, Princeton were the the kind of main schools that, that people were going to out of the top of the program. But there was, there was a real push there to do that. And then from there, and even like while I was the, you know, when, while I was at A&M, there were real decisions made about how do I position myself to be a designer and not be, you know, sort of stuck on... CAD drawing other people's stuff. And so I think part of it was the classes I took, part of it was decisions I made about what classes to take. I, I didn't take, I mean, I'm old enough that I could get away with this, but I never, I didn't have to take CAD in school. I didn't take any computer class in undergrad and it was offered, but I made the conscious decision not to, because I didn't want to get stuck being like the young guy in the office that knew how to work the computer. And, and that's all you, you got to do, which arguably was, you know, short term, not my best decision, but long term was <laughs> was was a good decision, right? So did that, got out of AM, went to work in Houston for a few years. Like, you know, 1991 was not the best year to graduate architecture. Yeah. And so ended up working for this guy doing Rudy Colby, still has a has a viable practice in Houston, like doing um, you know, houses in River Oaks. And it was just me and him. And but the most important thing that I learned was that A, that you know, design and style are two different things, right? So like I kind of went into that job being kind of turning my nose up at the Georgian style houses we were doing. But then like once I kind of got into it was realized there's good design there and then learn the whole practice of architecture at this small scale, which is really valuable. And then, you know, from there, it just kind of like felt, you know, kind of fell out. I went to Harvard. I went to, you know, to the GSD, which is arguably a good program and, you know, moved to New York, which, you know, my plan was to work in New York for, three or four years and then move back to Houston and then nice girl from Staten Island. And here I am 20, whatever years later. But the other thing that I've done, which is, you know, was short term, maybe not the best decision, but long term has worked out for me is to make a concerted effort not to work on commercial kind of developer projects, but to look for public program intensive projects. I went to Perkins of Will, did hospitals and schools, Went to Polshek, who, you know, Polshek does cultural work as well as a lot of university work, and then sort of moved on from there to DSR, where we do, you know, museums and concert halls and those sorts of things. And so, so I think, yeah, there, there, you know, there were definitely decisions I made along the way to that, that led me here. How thoughtful those decisions were at the time versus how good they look in hindsight is questionable, but, you know, they're, you know, they're kind of what, what brought me here. So. I think any architectural career involves a certain amount of reassessing and pivoting, yeah. you know, as you go. I don't know a single person that laid out some plan when they were 24 years old 
and then when they're 55 looked back and went i nailed it yeah yeah you know <laughs> all those decisions were perfect i, I nailed it yeah <laughs> i left a firm or two out in there but yeah i would imagine that even when you were making those decisions early on in your career it wasn't a hundred percent to get you in the like to put you in the place that you are now i mean you might have been thinking that it might help but what you weren't a hundred percent sure that was really what was going on going to happen out of it yeah yeah no exactly i think you know and like we're all told in school that like 10 percent or less of the people in school end up doing the things you do in school right and like i'm i'm somehow that 10 percent. although believe me i don't do that right i like i'm you know bob bob sees me work half the time i feel like my job is to make us seem like we're competent in technical things with you know some of the crazy stuff we draw right but there you know i, I kind of went into this not thinking that this is where i was going to end up and actually even along the way you know my job at polshack was frankly a lot more technical i was like the ca guy at, at polshack the designer in ca but but still I, I did a lot of a lot of ca which i i still love i still like i i'm convinced that more design happens in in the field than it doesn't that matters than it does in schematic and that's also something i learned you know doing houses in houston it doesn't matter you know how good of an idea you have at sd if you don't draw something that's buildable and if you don't go out in the field and make sure that that you kind of get the buy-in from the guys building it it's, it's never going to happen you know what i do is very much you know at, at the top of what architects want to do but at the end of the day what i'm still doing is what all architects do i mean we're we're all just trying to get it built and trying to figure out path of least well i don't know maybe the path of most resistance but it's all about building consensus we're not solo kind of the the whole fallacy of the genius architect with the, the genius sketch that goes out and then people build it that's not that's not how this works i mean it's like you know hundreds of people go into building a building and you know you have to build consensus among those people and there's ways to do that so that's an easy segue into a question i don't really get it want to get into but i'm going to put it out there just as a like a little amuse bouche it kind of falls into the architects as artists or architecture as art we actually had that conversation as a topic on the podcast is architecture art and i think andrew didn't we both fall on the line that it's artistic yeah, but it's, it's not, not art it takes so many people yeah. to pull it together it doesn't have that singular vision that we think real art needs as opposed to the all right you 37 people you're all important we all need you to do what you do to to lift everybody else up you may not agree with that but that's kind of where we landed on that i actually heard when kind of like skipping around your your podcast and prepping for what i was what i was in for here i actually heard i i heard i heard that one and and actually i i would say that you know my feeling about that is that and, and this this comes from working in the arts, right? Working with theater people, working with art, you know art museums, and by extension, a lot of artists. That actually, a lot more art happens like this than happens with the the kind of one guy sitting in front of an easel. Like you know, I think most most contemporary art today is made by teams. Like certainly, theaters made by teams, movies are made by teams. I, I think there's, I I would argue that architecture not all architecture is an art i think there's little a architecture and big a architecture and i would say that you know i'm not saying that all of ours is big a architecture by any means but there are certainly buildings and we could kind of go through the list of our history that rise to the level of art and, and the stories may be that there was a senior genius but there was no there, there never was you know it's like it's always it's a it's a team sport so i'm not disagreeing with you guys 
All I'm disagreeing is that I, I'm not sure that's the difference between what's art and what's not. It's low hanging fruit because we also got into well, you know, there's budgets, yeah, there's yeah. municipalities, there's codes. Oh, and that's the fun stuff. <laughs> Okay, so let me ask you this, because I have seen you work, and you know, you're very articulate, and I always kind of, you know, when I come home and I tell my wife what my day was like, it has to do with designers managing other designers, yeah. right? You know, because your, your firm is viewed as, this is design excellent. So I'm a principal at Boca Pal, you're a principal. I'm a senior designer, even though what I'm doing on the project for you is not my wheelhouse, it's not what yeah. I do. But, but I'm good at reading the temperature of the room a lot of times. So there's the idea that I have a lot of younger designers that work underneath me. They carry most of the water. My job is to walk over there and sprinkle management designer fairy dust to put them back on track. Like sometimes they'll go down a rabbit hole and you kind of go, this is what I want you to focus on. And then you let them go do lifting on that. Sometimes I have to do that with the partners. <laughs> Well, that's part, right? That's, that's one of the things we, so look, let me just get into the questions because we're going to, we're going to unbox that. So the question I had for you where that's concerned is kind of like, what's it like to work at a firm where design excellent and, and winning awards, quite honestly, is probably the standard. Yeah. Uh, let me put a little tagger on there. There's probably not a lot of firms. And I imagine you work at one of them that falls in this category. The idea that you're expected to win a design award, like, you know, maybe not so bluntly as I just said it, but the idea that it's not a matter of if it's like, oh, we want to do this. And like you get hired because people expect that you're going to do something that's going to be so great. Of course, it's going to win design awards. What's it like to work for a firm like that? Like what kind of pressures does that bring to the mix? Um, I, I think it's, you know, it's, I mean, I've been there, you know, 17 years now. Right. So it's, it's, honestly hard to remember well and Polshek was a firm like that too like maybe at a, a different Polshek now any ad that was also of a different era maybe but they that was also a firm where you know it was led by designers and decisions were made on design and i was there for five six years before i started dsr so you know i've got 20 plus years of working at firms like this so i don't it's it's what i know so i wouldn't say that there's pressure to do that. In some ways, it's easier for me to do that because we're coming into projects where the expectation is that we're doing sort of high level design, right? The, the, what, you know, the reason we've been brought into this project is because there's a certain aspiration for the, the design of the project. That in some ways makes it easier because there's, I, I have worked in places where I remember there was where you're kind of fighting against the easier way out, right? You're fighting against that's really nice. Yeah, that's not what we're looking for. That's that's nice, but that's going to be too hard or that's going to be too expensive or that's, you know, that's going to take too long. And not that I don't deal with that, right? But 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 I'm starting from a point where if I'm in the room, there's an expectation not and not because of me, but because of the firm. If I'm in the room, there's an expectation that the level of the design is going to be at a, a certain, you know, at a certain point. And so it takes some of the pressure off of getting up to that level. We occasionally will fall into a project where, you know, maybe the director wants something, but then the, you know, the guys that we're dealing with in the field are just like, well, that's, or the, you know, the, the owner's reps or project managers or whatever, are like, well, that's, that's just too hard. Like, why would we do that? I don't feel pressure to get there. We definitely talk about it in the office and there's just an expectation that we're not going to put anything out that we don't put up, want to put our name on. Sure. So there's that. And and I work with a really talented group of people. I mean, you know, like everybody that I work with is super talented. So I don't know if I'm really answering your question, but pressure isn't really the concern. It's a lot of work. 
it's certainly a lot of work. And, you know, the stakes are pretty high on, you know, these are not low value projects in general, but whether, you know, kind of getting to that level of design isn't so much of a concern. One of the things I wonder though is, do you think you feel that differently as a 17 year experienced principal at this firm? Like, what's it like for the person that got hired in this year one? Like, like, do you hire kids or does everybody come in with some baggage? Um, Well, everybody comes with baggage, but experience maybe the better word that yeah but uh yeah i don't know we we have a lot of a lot of people who hire straight out of school mostly grad it's you know hiring out of undergrad is less common we do but mostly we're hiring out of graduate school so you know these are 25 26 27 year olds for the most part so it's you know there's a little bit more maturity there but i think we're a funny office in that i mean look liz diller is the the engine of the firm right i mean both in terms of energy and thought and you know there's four principles and they're all very good you know charles you know charles also very very strong but liz liz is the founding partner you know very much the kind of leading force and she runs the studio more you know and the studio is run more like an atelier than it is like a kind of top down here's the genius sketch go go implement this kind of firm so someone coming in straight out of school you're expected to produce and engage on in day one. And so so there's certainly pressure there. You're not expected to come up with the big idea. You're not expected to, you know, there's not this expectation that you're going to be the one, right? That you're going to come up with the one big idea, but you're expected to contribute. And so, you know, I was I was older when I came in. And so I, I don't exactly know what that's like. But you know, there is a certain level of pressure there that's different than there than in other firms, right? If you get it. And if you are willing to run with that, it can be really rewarding. But I've also seen it be really kind of intimidating and people tie themselves up in knots over it. So, Well, okay. So that's a segue into a question I have here. And it's, how do you think working for a firm like uh, DSNR, where you're known for your design skills and vision, like, like you said, there's a reason why you guys are in the room. How do you feel that's different from a more traditional practice for these younger people? So I'm Maybe we might be the same age. I graduated in 92. Yeah, we probably are. There was kind of a thinking, at least back then, that for the really strong designer types, the idea is I'm going to go work for firm X and it would be a rock star, like someone generally everyone, a name brand. Yeah. With the idea that they're going to work there for a couple of years and then punt out and go do something else or go do their open their own office or something along those lines. And I wondered, do you guys... Is that still a thing? Yeah, we have a word for that that I probably can't say on the podcast. But yeah, I mean, that, it definitely happens. And, and and it's not always a bad thing. I mean, look, I mean, there's there, there are definitely people that are looking to kind of punch their card with different star architects and will be in the office for a couple of years. And, you know, we're not expecting everybody we hire to stick around for 20 years, right? But there's a lot of that. And, and frankly, I think I, I give this advice all the time. If you're straight out of school, you should move around right like mm-hmm. go see what's right for you i i was 35 when i started working at dsr and had worked at three or four offices of different sizes and different types and kind of knew what i wanted to do and had my skill set so i had plenty to learn at 35 obviously but but had kind of knew where i wanted to be and going to a firm when you're 25 years old and staying there for the rest of your life just that doesn't make sense either you're not going to get a full set of experience doing that but I'm not opposed to people coming in. There's definitely, there's, there, there are definitely the people who are kind of 
surfing star firms, right? And we try mm -hmm. not to hire those people if we see that that's what's happening. But you know, it happens, and sometimes they're great. You know, sometimes they've they've actually some people have picked up a lot doing that. Other people have not. So I think it's it's a it's a mixed bag. Yeah. Okay. Since we're on the topic of young folks, yeah. for the most part, if someone came to you and they're in their twenties, all right, and they walk in, and they see principal Kevin Rice over in the corner in his double desk. <laughs> they came over and they said, what do you think is the most underrated skill for an architect is? Reading a room. Reading. Oh, funny that I said that yeah. earlier. What is your definition of that though? Cause I know what Bob's is. So what do you mean by that though? I think it would be interesting to hear. Well, I think it's, I'm joking a little, a little bit. I think, you know, Bob put it in my head, but it's a lot of what I do. That's a skill for a 35-year-old. Skill for a 25-year-old is learn how to know what you don't know. Learn how to go into a situation and say, all right, these are the things I know. These are the things I don't know. How am I going to go find the information to fill in the gaps of what I don't know? And too often what I see is that people are so focused on trying to show what they know that they miss the things they don't know. And actually what I'm more interested in are the things you don't know and that you've gone out and found the information or found the right people to talk to, to find out those things a little bit later, as you've built those skills, like, and that, that's, a, that's all about skill building, right? That's, and that could be about drawing. That could be about construction. That could be about programming. That could be about a million things, but it's, it's about learning. Like how do you, you know, how do you continue learning and sort of educating yourself as you build those skills, the thing that you need to do in my experience to implement this crazy thing we do is you've got to be able to convince people to go along this ride with you. I jokingly say that my job at this point in my career is kind of half Pied Piper and half Burt Reynolds from Smoking the Bandit, <laughs> which you guys are old enough to know what that means. But you know, it's half like bringing all these people along on a trip that may not necessarily want to follow me, but convincing them one way or the other to follow me along this trip because it, it's hard and we've all got to be, we've all got to work on it together. Right. And so, so that's where the reading the room part comes from. The other thing that I personally do, and this, this is also kind of an acquired skill over the years, and this is the Burt Reynolds thing is there's a bit of like drawing fire and distraction that I have to do that lets the team however we constitute that team and whoever it is i'm drawing fire from but the team you know the truck full of coors light rolling down you know i-40 or whatever it was just keep plowing along while i'm pulling the distractions off to the side so i think there's those kinds of skill sets are really important if you want to like get up into the management on a on projects like this having a, a kind of broad skill set of knowing you know knowing what you don't know being able to read a room and how to convince people. And by the way, Zoom is the is an awful place to read rooms. This the last two years have not been good for that. <laughs> but knowing how to read a room and figure out what is going to motivate people, not just to help you, but to want to help you, to want to kind of buy in and and be part of this crazy thing we're doing. And then also just kind of like pulling pulling the distraction away from the team that needs to get the get the job done, which is is actually really difficult and, and complicated. Yeah, yeah, I think that's interesting because you know I spend most of my time trying to teach my students that a large part of our job is actually being a salesman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Similar to what you're saying, right? Is that we have to convince everybody that what we're wanting to do is the thing to do, and I have to, especially in studio, tell them, well, they're not a tour guide for your project. You're actually trying to sell me on the idea 
of your project and not yeah. the front door's here and it makes sense because of this, but yeah. why is this project important? I think that's one of the hardest things to teach, but also one of the hardest things to learn in reality. Yeah. And, and, and frankly, convincing the people who hired you, that's the easy part because they already hired you, right? You've, you've already like, I mean, there, there's the sales of getting hired, but once you've been hired, you've already kind of sold them on the general idea of you, right? Of what it is that we do. I tell you, it's, it's the guys in the field. Like I, I grew up working class. My father was an electrician. It's like, I know that world. And like, those guys know so much more about what they do than we'll ever know. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I tell people in my office all the time who like, you know, are out in the field and like complaining about the quality of plaster work. It's like, go to Home Depot, buy a little pint of spackle and go fill a hole in your wall. And then you go talk to that guy. Because you can't, you can't do it. Like I can't do it. I've been, you know, I've been trying to fill holes in my walls for years. You can't do it. So I have respect for those guys and and you got to like, you have to meet them on their, where they are, but that's what brings them along, right? You have to go like and talk to them. Don't like tell them what they need to do. Talk to them about how, how should we do this? And so, and you know, look, I'm also not above being a total asshole if I need to be to get somebody's attention, right? It's like, it's, there's that too, but, but it really is about trying to figure out what people, what motivates people, why they're there and how do you convince them to help you on this crazy road? On the the road, we were working with Gensler was our executive architect and managing director. Who's a good friend of mine in the mm-hmm. LA office or you know, former managing director. He, he was saying one day, he was like, you guys really aren't more talented than we are. You're just more tenacious. Like you just don't <laughs> give up. And it's, and there's some truth to that, right? I mean, it's not, I mean, I wouldn't say it's all truth, but, but there is, there's some truth to that. There is a thing about like, just not taking the easy no, like, I don't know. I I feel like I keep answering questions that are different than the question you guys are asking, but. I think it's interesting though, is that really, I think it sounds like in reality, you not taking the no happens a lot in CA, which is where I think a lot of architects seem to, seem to give in. It happens a lot in master planning too. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure, but <laughs> well, I've seen some of that. But um... yeah, we've seen it. You know, it, it is kind of interesting. And so if we if we just take a, an extra minute to to build on that a little bit, you know, I it's funny. I don't know if this is the difference. So when I was doing primarily fairly high touch white glove residential work, mm-hmm. there was to Andrew's point, we're selling them, and I, I I wrote an article about that once, and one of my clients called me up, and he was he was actually pissed. He's like, "Have you been manipulating me like this whole time?" Yes. And I was like, "And I was like, no. My job is not to manipulate you. It's to empower you to make the right decision because I gave you the information to do it. Right? It's still right. your decision. Like you're making the decision. My job is to give you the tools you need to make the decision that I think you should make." Because I know more about it than you do. That's really what this is. Yeah. He still didn't like it, but at least he knew I wasn't coming from the same place that he thought that maybe I was coming from. Car salesman. And yeah. So we used to have this policy that I I have two things that I do. I'll go. If somebody says, I want A and I go, well, I think you should do B. And here's why I think you should do B. And they go, I want A. And I go, okay, so let's, let's talk about what happens if you choose A. If they still want they still want that. I can't, after three times I go, okay, cheers. You're living with it. This is, I've, I felt like I've done what I needed to do. But then when I got a little bit older and I had a little bit more, I don't know, I carried a little bit more weight into these conversations, you know, the white hair and beard help a little bit, I think. Yeah. I'll tell folks right at the very beginning that I get three things and you could never do this on one of your projects. I don't know. Maybe you could, maybe you have the ability to do that, but I would say 
I get three things that no matter what, when I say this is what we're doing, you're going to do them. Like I get three free passes. <laughs> so if I say, nope, like you're wrong on this. I need you to trust me. I'm the expert. You know, you hired me for a reason and I'm willing to play this card in this moment because that's how important it is. What makes that interesting is I've told that to probably, I don't know, dozen residential clients. Yeah. I've never had to do it. Yeah. Right. Just like the idea that, hey, I, you at have some those, point I'm going to push those. on something. Yeah. It's interesting. No, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I, I, um, you think you're going to try that on your next project? <laughs> well, I would never, I would never limit it to three. But, <laughs> you know, my experience has been that there's people want to trust you, right? I mean, they've, they've hired you for a reason. We could easily be a prima donna firm. And I think, you know, there are probably people who would laugh at me when I say that we're not, but we, do really try to do what the clients want. That said, what the clients want isn't always what the clients say they want. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, you know, I mean, look, if, if you knew what you wanted before I showed up, why, why did I show up? Right. And so, or if you knew exactly, you know, if you're just going to dictate to me how to draft your house or, or whatever, which it's, you know, we do, I, I, try to stay as far away from the residential work as I can in the studio, but we do do residential work, but it's usually those kinds of clients. Although frankly, you know, in some ways the Broad, because it was a single client, you know, one guy, his collection, his money was like a big residential project. But, you know, if people come in and they're like, here's what I want, part of it is kind of like, well, then let me show you how there's a better way to do what you want. That's different than what you just said to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, and at the end of the day, if somebody's like, no, look, this is absolutely what, what I want, we'll do that and we'll kind of work around it and make the best of it. But in general, what I found is that we can usually, with the right amount of information and the right, right amount of kind of work on our, our end, show clients that there is a better way to get what they ultimately are looking for than what they have in their head when we walk in the door. Well, that should be the value that you bring. Right. right? Exactly. I mean, exactly. Like you're at the table. Yeah. I mean, why any of it, all, all of us, right. Architects as a profession, it's like, if we're just coming in and drawing what the client thinks they want, then why do they even, you know, just, you know, why, why you know, like go, yeah, go to pad. a drafting service. Yeah. Go learn cheaper. pad yourself. Right. Yeah. So, but I think the, the, you know, the three Trump card is a, is an interesting, interesting way to make that explicit. But we, I, I think we all kind of work that way at some level. I honestly thought that I would use them when I, when I first finally said, yeah. look, I'm going to do this. I, I fully expected that I was going to have to go, all right, this is one of those moments. And the fact that I've never had to do it, like just saying it was all it took. I yeah. found that unbelievably interesting. Yeah. I think the interesting thing about some of this discussion for me, because I'm coming at it from a little different angle as a small firm person in my practice is I think some of the conversations when I was talking about being a salesman was because a lot of times I feel like no matter what, I'm still having to sell my client after I've gotten the job to sell them on my ideas. Yeah. Where I think maybe that's the difference that we were asking about earlier in the idea of working at a high design firm is there's an inherent level of design expertise that's given to you in a sense from, from the people that come to hire you that I don't think, you know, I had times where I had clients for, I mean, for my office, but large public institutions where they feel like they're more of an expert on that situation of designing that thing than I am. And I think that happens in a yeah, lot of yeah. a lot of small practices where it's not quite the same conversation that you guys are having with a client 
to sell what your idea is versus what I am, if that makes sense as a smaller thing, right? Yeah, no, it does. I mean, I mean, look, we occasionally will have clients come in and say, try harder. Like this is, you know, this is not, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, where we think we're like being responsible and like the client will come in and say, well, we were expecting more from you. And so, yeah, which careful taking the reins off of us, but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, I, I think it's true. And I think that is the biggest thing that makes what I do easier than it would at another firm. Like, you know, I've gone in meetings and been like, well, you saw our portfolio. Like, I think I, I may have even done that with, with the Quita recently. You saw our portfolio. You know what we <laughs> you were going to do. Yeah, you, you did. Like, why, like, why are you looking at me crazy right now? What do you think we were going to do? Yeah. I get to do that. I couldn't do that at a lot of other firms, but at other firms, there are, there are different things that I would have in my toolkit to move things forward. So. Well, okay. Let me ask you this because we kind of brought it up as a topic earlier, like being able to read the room yeah. and then it kind of segues into, Hey, when I'm talking to the client, you know, there's a certain amount of communication that goes into that to help them understand why we're doing what we're doing so that they can yeah. appreciate it and thereby for by appreciating it, it gives it value, right? That we all understand that's how that works. I'm assuming that you do a fair amount of traveling. I do a fair amount of traveling. Yeah. Do you like it? Like, do you see, do you still like, is there still shiny? I do like it to a certain, to a certain degree. I mean, I, I mean, part of, I think you and I may have been talking about this at some point, but part of what I like about working in a firm like DSR is that I get to do work everywhere, right? I mean, we've done work in New York, we've done work in LA, we're doing work in Texas. We've I've done, done work in Budapest and Bratislava, you know, Hainan, China, it's like all over. And so there's all these kind of like weird, interesting places that we get to go that at very good firms in most places are fairly local, right? I mean, not are relatively local. So I, I think, so there's an excitement to that, that I, I, I kind of get to fly all over and see these interesting things. Although to be honest, usually what happens is I've been to hotel bars and industrial parks in beautiful cities all over the world. I've gone to like back the, the factory towns outside of the most amazing cities in the world. Right. But <laughs> Which is okay. I mean, I, you know, I like factory towns, but it's that not like, it's not super glamorous, this travel, right? It's not like I'm like sitting around and drinking martinis. I flew to Australia for a meeting. Like try that, try, yeah. try just that in coach <laughs> because, because not in coach is like, you know, buying a pretty nice car, but it's brutal. And you're asking me how much I, how much I fly. I had before everything shut down for COVID, I had I already had like 28,000 miles under my belt in 2020 before, before March, which is it's crazy. It's like insane the amount, of, the amount of travel I do. That's a lot. You get to see a lot of cities at night after they've closed. Yeah, exactly. A lot of great places in the dark, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, well, like said, hotel bars, which are kind of the same everywhere, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. And so, I well, you know, I'm, I'm always kind of taking, I always kind of taking into consideration. So Kevin's coming to Dallas a few times. And um, one time I was like, hey, you guys got plans, you know, cause I'm very sensitive yeah, to yeah. this. Like when I go someplace and people just go like, see you later. <laughs> and you're like, okay, well, what am I going to do? Well, I know one of the times, cause I talked to one of the people that work on the project with, she's like, uh, we're all going back to hotel cause we got a presentation to yeah. work on. So you're just, you're just working in the hotel. And I know that hotel bar in, in a $32 cheeseburger is in your future. I mean, that's what your evening yeah, is going to be. That's right. And there's a lot of that. There is a lot of that. And, you know, so Andrew and I, we had a conversation about it. We both kind of liked it. We both didn't like it. It's not the glamorous life that people tend to think that it is, but you end up having these moments that you go would never like, this is this little stitch in my life is more interesting because I had this weird 
moment happen yeah. to me when I was in this industrial town and it's 11 o'clock in the morning and the cab driver says I owe him $300 for the ride yeah. or something. There's any, like actually tomorrow morning I'm flying to San Diego and then I have to drive from San Diego to LA, but I'm going to take 30 minutes out of that trip and go see the Salk, right? Because it's there and like you get to do stuff like that and then fly back the next day. But you make out of it what there is to do. And, you know, I, I tend to, you know, I've been at the office long enough and there's, there's the people that I work with have also been there that, you know, we're, you know, a good set of friends and we travel together and, you know, the trips to Dallas are great because I mean, I'm from Houston, not from Dallas, but I, you know, I have family and friends in Dallas and there's three of us on the project are all from, from Houston and have, have the same thing. So it's like the, you know, that's, that's actually pretty easy, easy, rewarding travel, but there are other places that, you know, that it's like, yeah. uh, you know, I, I don't speak the language. I don't know. You know, I don't know what to do here. They can't find anybody to tell me what to do here. Okay. Let's bring it back into the okay. office yep. for a minute. All right. So I know you just redid your offices uh-huh. and you, you got your desks and everyone's sitting in and our firms are about the same size. I think you're, you're 110, like yeah. 120, yep. somewhere in that area. So now that you've had a chance to live in it, what is the studio environment like in your office? Well, it's not that different than than what it was in our in our old space, which is in the same building. The only real difference that we made is we're all consolidated on one floor now instead of two floors. But I think it's uh, what's the studio environment? I mean, we it's big enough, and there are enough projects going on that at any given minute, there's one or two design meetings going on around the studio. So there's always this kind of, you know, kind of buzz of design. And, you know, we all sit together and sort of talk and look at stuff kind of or looking over each other's shoulders and talking about design. So there really is a kind of constant conversation about design going on in the office. And that can, you know, manifest itself in many different ways. But there's that. I think, you know, we're a very collaborative slash confrontational office it's which is you know so the meetings design meetings can go one of many different ways but the expectation is that ever you know it's not it's never a one-sided conversation it's like it's meant to be you know everybody's kind of in the mix and putting ideas on the table and if Liz or Charles puts a bad idea on the table and you're you know, and you're right to say that's a stupid idea you may or may not get away with it but you can you're expected to say it <laughs> And, you know, and at the end of the day, like the best idea, like oftentimes the best ideas come from the kids right out of school. You know, ultimately it's the partners and the principals that are making the decisions about what of those ideas are good ideas. But oftentimes it's kind of grows out of an idea that came from somebody fresh out of school. Right. And and there's, that's not uncommon. Mm-hmm. It's never a singular thing. Nobody can ever like go back and say, this project was my idea. You know, there's no singular ownership, even among, you know, even, you know, the, the partners will, they, they kind of have their individual projects, but they all, you know, will get involved in these design meetings. And and so it's, it's all kind of in the air and, you know, somebody will say something and then people just kind of riff on that and it kind of ends up being what it is. But I think because of that, it's, it's, it's very rewarding for everybody and it helps kind of build ownership for the team for these, you know, pretty difficult things that we do. It's interesting, Andrew. So I I don't know if I told you this, and I don't know if this is actually what I'm about to say is true. So you need to correct me if it's not, or lean into it if I'm not. Do you guys have a porter in your office? A porter? Yeah, like in the break room. When I was there, there was a person who seems like their job was to make coffee or clean dishes or put the fruit out. 
Um, yeah, we have a guy who's kind of our do it all handy. I wouldn't call him a porter, but he, um, yeah, he kind of, you know, he's, he's the kind of maintenance handyman, change the light bulbs, make sure the everything's. Yeah. So I guess, so I, so I guess, yes, we, yes, we do. I don't know that that's not the word I would use, but I guess that is. You should, you should change his title from handyman to porter because I went there and he was like setting out the food and he was yeah. making coffee. He's a great guy. People, and I he's thought, a great guy. I was like, man, we need that. And like, that's exactly what an architect's office needs. Not just like a pot of black coffee sitting in a burner. Oh man, coffee is a thing in our office. It's it's like, it's our our, our office runs on coffee. Yeah. And then they have that crazy espresso machine. Somebody with a degree has to run the coffee machine. Yeah. It's that intense. Yeah. That's what it is. So yeah. Well, we used to have a machine where you we literally needed like a barista. To, no, we didn't have one, but it was like such a complicated machine. But now it's... Now it's a more of a push button thing. Yeah, I guess Porter Porter may be more what he is. <laughs> it's certainly more friendly, I think. Old world style to it. All right, I have one question that I was, before we get to the part that really everybody wants to hear. I had somebody specifically, I said, hey, I'm talking to Kevin on, on the phone later tonight. And they go, hey, ask him this. Is this somebody I know? I'm not, who, I mean, who, who even knows these things? <laughs> okay, I mean, we're not in New York. We don't know yeah. what that's like, you know, to, to, to work in New York and... Then after going through COVID and renovating your yeah. offices. And so the, this person was like, Hey, how's their work day unfold? Like work from home policy, flex time policy. When do people show up? When do they leave? Cause I know, cause I was on Glassdoor looking some <laughs> other stuff cause I have HR responsibilities uh -huh. and everybody's comments for my own firm. Even they're like, this is great, but it's a lot of hours. Like everybody kind of mentions it's yeah. a lot of hours. And so I'm kind of curious, do you guys have flex policy do you have work from home policy is it all hands on deck all the time so we we went back late because we were renovating the office we went back late we didn't go back until march of this year like we were, we've been back in the office in any capacity less than a year and we had a ton of conversations about how to do this but we started three days a week we decided that we wanted everybody everybody in the office in the office together so we were mondays and fridays work from home tuesday wednesday thursday in the office. And so we did that for a couple of months. And then I can't remember exactly when, probably in the summer, we went to four days a week. So we're Monday, Monday through Thursday in the office. And then Fridays are work from home, which works out pretty well. But, you know, we're a hundred person office, but we're, you know, it's a bunch of small teams. And so if somebody needs to work from home for this reason or that, nobody's, nobody's really like checking, right? you know, days out or things like that. I mean, it's flexible. And then we, we were lucky during COVID in the beginning, we had to furlough a handful of people early on, but then by the fall of 20, we were starting to get work again and we started hiring and we ended up hiring a handful of people who had like left the office and moved across the country or things like that. So, so we still have some people in the office that, and some people in our office who moved during the pandemic that are still working. So we have a handful of people that still work, you know, this place or that. Mm -hmm. which uh, is nobody that I'm working directly with, but it's, you know, it, it has its challenges, but it's, um, you know, we're making it work. So yeah, so we're right now we're in four day a week land, but things are pretty flexible. And there's definitely a, a sense of, you know, get your work done. And if you're the kind of person who gets your work done, you're, you're given a lot of leeway, right? Sure. I mean, there are people like me who it's hard to define what my work is anyways. <laughs> There, there are those who would say I don't work, but, um, you know, we're, we're pretty flexible on that. And frankly, the hours 
you know, when I first got to DSR, we were, you know, we were all a bunch of kids. It was, you know, the office was like, you know, less than 20 people. Like we were doing competitions. We were working all the time. It's definitely different now. And it's, it's my office. If you're in my office at seven o'clock on a Wednesday, it's pretty cleared out, which wasn't the case five years ago, eight years ago. You know, right now, like this week, we've got three competitions going on, which I've, you know, miraculously managed to not get involved in. But, you know, when we have competitions going on, it's a whole other thing, right? Those are super intense. And whenever there's a deadline, it's all hands on deck all the time. But we're not as, there's not as many all-nighters as there used to be. There's not as many, if there are any, like I'm old, but I haven't been in the studio past midnight in years. And so I don't know. I, I don't see it as any worse than... Because of my role and because of the kind of firm we are, there's always, you know, just like your firm, there's always a, a local firm that we're working with in one capacity or another. So I get to see their culture and kind of how they work. And my experience has been that the kind of the kind of intensity of hours, and this is different, obviously this is different for some people in the studio, but but in general, the intensity of hours isn't any more extreme than it is in a firm like Gensler, let's say, or other more conventional firms out there. Sure. There are people in the studio whose particular skill set means that they end up working on competitions all the time. They would probably take exception with what I'm saying. But in general, it's not as bad as it used to be, certainly. Or as bad as it was in other firms I worked Yeah. All right. Well, Anson answered. That's yeah. what we needed. Okay. So Kevin has agreed to participate <laughs> in today's ranking. And in full disclosure, I spent some time thinking about whether or not I should make the topic of this ranking hard or controversial, or should I make it easy? And in the end, I decided to go with potentially controversial. And I will say that I did, I, there is a bear trap in here for, for you. For me? Okay. Andrew's been a part of this for so long. He doesn't <laughs> care if there's a bear trap. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he just it doesn't it. matter. Yeah. So are you ready for this? I'm ready. Yeah. Okay. So today we're going to be ranking. Drum roll, please. The three worst pets. And, I'll, you know, no, I'm not, I'm not even going to tell you. So the way this works, I know you've heard it, and I've told yeah. we've talked about this before. Since I asked the question, I go last. And as our guest, you get to go first so that Andrew <laughs> and I can make fun of you. Yeah. And we start with number three, and we'll go, we'll kind of round robin it. So we just need your third worst yeah. pet. Oh, third worst. Yeah. Third worst. That's it. Don't just blurt them all out. Just... Not top worst. Third this worst. This is number three okay. in the position to get to number one. Before I do that, I, Bob tipped me off to what we were talking about. So I was over dinner. I was thinking about this. So I'm, I'm a dog person. And as far as I'm mm -hmm. concerned, why would you have any other pet? So for me, it's kind of like there are dogs and then there's everything else down here. So it's like kind of ranking that everything else. Yeah. Yeah. That's the job. That's you how know, it is. Kevin, this is really, <laughs> this is an exercise in critical thinking. Yeah. I'm going with, uh, I'm going with fish <laughs> and okay. I'm not even sure that's a pet. I think it's a hobby. Yeah. Fish seems like a legit kind of as a pet. That was the thing we thought it's like decoration <sighs> yeah. is what it is. Cause the thing that makes it nice is they're nice to look yeah. at. Like they put nice light into the room when it's dark, but as a pet. Yeah. I think I'm with you on that one. I don't mind fish. I used to have a giant aquarium. I don't mind when them, I was a but kid. it's a pet. I, I could see that, but I think they're okay as a pet. It just depends on your definition of pet. Yeah. Which I think is what's going to come into play in this whole scenario of what we're talking about is what, what is the yes. definition of pet is? Yeah. Can you pet it? Yes, yeah. exactly. Like, what do you want out of a pet? Would you name it and does it respond to its name? <laughs> well, that rules out a whole lot. <laughs> uh, if you have a dog, my daughter had fish yeah. and she named them. Okay, true. Depends That's how many true. you have. 
Right. You got one betta fish or one goldfish. It's got a name. Right. You got a hundred gallon it's tank. They it. probably don't all have names. Yeah. All right, Andrew, what's your number three? My number three is birds. A bird. That's a good answer. Birds. Because to me, birds are even more useless than fish. Because it's not even like you want to sit and look at a bird <laughs> in a cage because it doesn't do anything. I mean, if you're bird watching outside, it's different. They're flying around. They're doing their thing. But you have a bird in a cage. It doesn't do anything. It makes noise. Probably, in my mind, smells or, you know, there's this whole thing of a litter box kind of thing. But that's it. And maybe a parrot because you get, I mean, if it was me, I'd teach you to say inappropriate things. But even still. You wouldn't have to teach it. It would just pick it up. <laughs> yeah. But even still, to me, birds. Birds is my number three. I'm willing to put money on the fact that if you have a bird and you let that bird out of the cage to like, you know, fly around like birds do, 100% chance you have bird poop on your drapes. Oh, yeah. Oh, 100% yeah. chance. That's true. Ugh, God, come on. So you're number three then? My number three is spiders. Like a tarantula. Oh, like a tarantula, huh? Interesting. Yeah. Because I go, same thing. Why so bad? I mean, yeah, I guess. Same First thing. off, they creep almost everybody out. They don't actually creep me out. But, uh, yeah. you know, there's a whole story. I can make it short, but I ended up getting my hands on a tarantula because some old dudes that lived across the street from me, they went to go visit their wives. They have a bunch, they all their wives are at the same cemetery. And one of the guys caught a tarantula out there when he was visiting his wife. I come home and they're all huddled up and I go, what are you guys doing? And it was in a giant mayonnaise jar and they were debating who gets to step on it. <laughs> right. <laughs> And so I was like, I was like, I, so I just took it. And I go, nobody's stepping on this spider. And at that time, yeah. my daughter was like four years old and I had this thing and I was like, you know what? I don't want to have that daughter that's scared of bugs or any of that kind of stuff. So I, I wanted to show it to her so, and she thought it was cool. It was a, like a ruby need tarantula. And that yeah. afternoon, like right then we went and got all the stuff. We put it in a little, a little enclosure, slid it on the shelf. My wife was not home when this was happening, by the way. And it went into this bookcase where it was like maybe an eighth of an inch difference between the, the cage it was in and between the shelves. And my wife came on. She's like, oh, that's gone. And I go, why? And she goes, uh, it's going to escape. And I don't want it running around the house. I go, what's it going to be like running up against the glass until it can <laughs> knock the whole thing off the shelf? Ultimately, I gave it to a second grade school teachers who ended up with it. But yeah, spiders. I go, generally speaking, no, pass. Well, yeah, when I was a kid, I mean, I used to go out to like Midland in New Mexico, out that way where my grandparents and great-grandparents lived. I would catch tarantulas and stuff all the time as a kid. But yeah, I, would, I don't think I would want as one a as pet. a pet. Although they're cooler than at least a fish or a bird. I mean, there's a little bit of like, oh, that's really cool. But you're right. It's probably they're galvanizing. a small percentage of people that want one. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're definitely creating factions with your pet yeah. choice if you go spider. Right. Yeah, for sure. All right. All right, Kevin. So that brings us back around. So you're, you're number two. Uh, so I think my number two, I think my number two, though, is along the same lines as a spider. And I think it's the same kind of factions. And I'm going to say, you know, a lizard. <laughs> Although maybe even more so because, you know, because a lizard, ostensibly, you can kind of carry it outside with you somewhere. But, oh, yeah. Um, I'll testify. Yesterday in the grocery store, there's a guy walking around with it, like a college student. With a giant bearded dragon kind of lizard on his shoulder while he's strolling through the grocery store. Yeah. yeah. That says college town all over it. But yeah. I know. And I was like, dude, this is really weird. Yeah. But he was just cruising around H-E-B with it. Okay. Let me tell you this. So my mother-in-law just moved into an assisted care facility. 
And one of the tasks that fell to me is I had to rehome all her pets, which included three dogs, two cats, and, among other things, a bearded dragon. So my daughter's grandmother had a bearded dragon as a pet. And I'll tell you, (laughs) it was the easiest thing to get rid of on the planet. I mean, the line of people who wanted this thing was a mile long. It was reptiles are super easy to get rid of. Just for the right, just letting you know, putting that out there. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. So, maybe, so maybe that moves it up the list a little bit. But uh, no, no, I, I don't. No, there. Who wants them? Is it aware that you're there? Is it interested in you at all? Yeah, it, there's some interaction, there? but not a lot. I would imagine, unless you got crickets. You got a handful of crickets. They probably love you. Yeah, yeah. They they sit in a cage and underneath yeah. a, a heat lamp for most of the time. Yeah. When you let them out, maybe they run around a little bit. But it's not like they're like they don't. I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure the people yeah. that own them go. Oh, I have a bond. We have a bond together. I'm sure they would yes. say that. He sits in my lap and I pet him while we watch TV. I'm mm. sure. Yeah. yeah. My problem with that is that... Or we go to H-E-B. Yeah, we take him to the grocery store all the time. Yeah, my problem with that is like, it's always like there's got to be the cage or the, you know, the glass aquarium that's got, I don't know, 70 some odd crickets rolling around in it for them to eat whenever they want. Yeah. Or mealworms. Anyway. Gross. My next one, my number two is a turtle. Really? Yeah. For the same reason. Like, these are inanimate objects. I mean, a turtle could be made of ceramic sitting in a cage yes. to be pretty much the same as it was if it was alive. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I like turtles and stuff, but as a pet, I'm kind of like, uh, what are we doing here? Anytime you pick it up, it hides. You know, I mean, it's not, there's zero. Look, I need to say this. Turtle's my number two as well. <laughs> I was like, all right. Even though, <laughs> yeah. you know, I actually thought I should have put like gerbils on this list or something. Like, they're actually yeah. terrible, super terrible. But yeah, turtle. They go, they dig and go to sleep for months. And you're like, <laughs> I, it just, it's just a yeah. lump underneath a fake tree stump in some room in your house. Yeah. Ugh, come on. And again, I like yeah. turtles. I just picked one up the other day in my cul-de-sac because it was out in the middle of the road. And I brought it in and I was like, hey, look. And then we let it go. But just, yeah. As a pet. Yeah. As a pet, no. Also, grandma had a turtle. I didn't want to like let that out. So... <laughs> The bearded lizard has, has something to look at. They both have to have somebody to look at in the in the cage, right? Yeah. Well, I think I think the turtle was named Rocky too. The vet took the vet took the turtle, and I've gotten pictures. I get updates of like, look how happy your the, the your grandmother's turtle is in my backyard, and it's like again you said, it looks like a rock in the grass. <laughs> I'm not seeing the joy. I'm not seeing the joy see in this the turtle's face. Turtle smile and like yes. Yeah. It's doing cartwheels yeah, through the yard. It's so, it's so happy. You can't train so them happy. to do anything, right? That's no fun. Yeah, yeah. All right, so we're, yeah. we're on our number ones now, Kevin. This better, this better be a good one. All right. All right, so here we go. Controversy. Hear it. Controversy. Cats. Oh, uh, see, I knew that is. was coming. <laughs> I knew that was coming when you started with dogs. I knew this was going to be it. Oh, man. And, and I get that people like them. People love them. But... I, I've never met a cat that you can do like without. Happy to be around anybody. <laughs> That's what's great about cats. Yeah. I mean, there's there's, <laughs> so there's the one thing. There's they're the they're the pets. They're the you know the this is I mean this has been my criteria right. But you know there's the fish and the the lizards that you know are completely unaware of you. The problem with the cat is it's aware of you and doesn't care. Mm. <laughs> That's true. But that's part of the indifference that I enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> 
you know, one of my favorite little skits is this thing about cat energy versus dog energy and how dogs are just always like, hey, 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 how's it going? I love you. Come on, come on, come on. Come on. Hey, hey. And cats are like, meh. Hey, yeah, I don't really care. You know, so. Yeah, how are you? But I saw that uh, coming. I don't care, actually. Yeah, I, whatever. Yeah. yeah. I'm good. I mean, with people, here. I prefer that with people. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to keep people's pets. So, yeah, you like, want cat yeah. people, not dog people, but you want dogs and yeah. cats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you know, it's funny. There's definitely a line in the sand, and dog people and cat people fall on different sides of it for sure. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's true because I mean, I've had both. I like both, actually. I just, as I've gotten older, dogs are just more work than cats. Dogs are a lot of work. Especially when I was traveling and stuff like that. Before COVID, when I was traveling all the time, the dogs would have been so much more complicated to deal with than cats. That's the one nice thing about cats is when I leave, they don't care. Their life is all kind of set up, but a dog, I've got to figure out somebody to take care of it and do, you know, all these sorts of things. With a cat, you can put five days worth of food out and it'll last five days. Yeah, exactly. With a dog, it'll last five seconds. Yeah. It's gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. All right, Andrew, number one. Man, I had this down to two choices and um, I think, I think I'm still going to go with a reptile and I'm going to say a snake. I know a lot of people like snakes. I mean, my sister used to have some snakes, and I've known a lot of people that have snakes. But to me, again, they're one of those things that, I don't know. They don't do a lot of purpose. And then if they get really big, it's kind of scary. Like, I knew a guy when I was in college that had like a seven-foot python in his house. His name was Zeus. (laughs) He would leave the cage open, and that snake would come out in the middle of the night, sleep beside him in the bed and stuff. And I'm just like, hmm. I don't mind snakes. That's not what I want to have happen to me. That's ridiculous. No, that's ridiculous. You know, and like I said, you're not going out on a limb choosing snakes as your number one. No, I don't think any of these are out on a limb, really. But I'm going to go controversial here because you're going to think I'm not playing by the rules. I didn't say I didn't say house pets, by the way. I just said pets. And so mine is any sort of farm animal, like a donkey (laughs) or like a pot-bellied pig. No. (laughs) Yeah. You know what? And I know people that are like, oh, this is my, my cute little pot pig. And I'm like, that is a yeah. hog. That is going to weigh 400 pounds. Yeah. Like and they don't, they delicious. don't stay little. They don't know little. Yeah. They're cute. Even the teacup ones end up weighing like 40 to 50 pounds. I mean, that's a good size dog. Yeah. It's not a teacup anything. It's a teacup pig. Yeah. No, it is 10% it's of an way. actual pig weight, but it's still big. Yeah. I actually have a friend of mine. He has a donkey as a pet. I mean, he lives out like a mini donkey or a big donkey. Uh, I mean, it's chest high donkey. I don't know. I don't know my donkeys. I'm like, that's a donkey. There you go. That's the extent of my knowledge. And he has one. He goes, you know what? If I come outside, it's so smart. I can just call his name. He comes running in. He starts, you know, like yo, making sounds at me. It's hilarious. (laughs) I'm like, all that sounds terrible. That's funny. I mean, if you live in the country, it's one thing, right? If, but I, I think it depends. I think it all depends on where you live. Yeah. If my neighbor yeah. next door had a donkey, man, we'd, we'd have words for sure. Well, it's like, if you, even if you live in the suburb, don't get me wrong. I'm okay with uh, you know having your own eggs, but like people in the suburbs that got a chicken farm in their backyard because they want fresh eggs and the, all the noise and the smell and all that stuff those things make. I'm just like, man, come on. You can just buy them at the store or go to the farmer's market where there's yeah. somebody's growing them, you know, from somewhere else. My other second choice was going to be a rat. Like, yeah, I'm surprised was... nobody brought those in there. I don't think they're really bad pets, but they're just they're kind of gross. The idea of you know rat, gerbil, hamster, all those sorts of things. Yeah. Gerbils for Rodents. sure. My my Rodents. daughter my daughter had rats as pets for a while. Man, 
But you know, the thing is, she didn't get like Norwegian roof rats. That's not what she had. She had ones that were, <laughs> you know, hers. What she didn't get like a New York City subway rat. It was the kind yeah. called like a Dumbo rat, is what they're called. And they have like these big, big ears. ears. And they're, they don't really look like rats. They look like, mm. they look like tiny, tiny dogs. <laughs> Once they got that long kind of hairless tail, man, that's what, like, I just well, can't Well, they're do smart. It. They know their name. I mean, you can teach them to do stuff. I mean, it's different than all, most of the other Maybe things so. we set on the list. So, Hey, just so you know, I play fetch, Kevin, with my cat. My cat has I'm learned to play fetch. I'm not saying you're not smart. I'm not and we'll sit smart. in my chair and play, and play fetch with my cat until, you know, he gets bored of it, which that's okay because then I'm bored of it by then, too. Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm fortunate in that my dog is not super interested in fetch because I, I have friends who have dogs that are will just keep bringing you that ball back and it's like all right i'm done and there is there is no done but so my dog is not interested in fetch at all so so i have that but you know when he wants to go for a walk he wants to go for a walk i get it i was gonna say in, a, in an urban environment right you've kind of got to take him on a walk pretty regularly yeah well we have a backyard so it's, you do have a backyard okay. but, but uh yeah we uh, he still likes gets a walk once you know doesn't always have, not every time he goes out, it's not a walk, but it's often enough. <laughs> All right. Well, there yeah. you go. All right, Kevin, thank you for letting us yeah. invade your evening. We appreciate you taking time to hang out with us and just kind of have a, a chat about stuff. Yeah. Thanks. It was fun. Yeah. I appreciate it. Uh, Andrew. Yeah. I didn't know if you wanted to say thanks. Sorry. My daughter, <laughs> I'm, I'm supposed to be picking up my daughter from the volleyball game. So I'm trying to deal with that. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us, Kevin. I appreciate the time. <laughs> sounded so genuine. <laughs> Sorry, I got distracted. Really, yeah, really thanks. Really touching. Throw the ball at me. No, I do appreciate it. And I actually really want to make sure that we get to connect next time you're in town. Yeah, yeah. I'll, Even I'll, if just for a coffee or something, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I have your email. I'll let you know when I'm, when I'm in. All right, man. Thanks, yeah. Kevin. Thanks so much, man. I'll thanks, talk guys. Yep, we appreciate All it. All right, take care. Bye. Thanks for being with us today for episode 111, Talking Shop with Kevin Rice. Special thanks to our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. Want to get every new episode automatically downloaded? Make sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast player of choice so you can get alerted every time we publish a spectacular new episode. While you're there, please take a few moments and leave us a five-star Kevin Rice-approved rating. To get more content, head over to lifeofanarchitect.com for blog posts, links, and info about this righteous episode and all the website has to offer. You can even add your own voice and join the conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.